I want to start by saying that Chipotle saves lives. For those of you who can agree with that statement, stand with me. I want to see by a show of hands, who agrees that you believe Chipotle is so good that it is literally life-changing? Okay, all right, my whole family, obviously, and Russell, all right. What about the people who, who may not <laughs> agree with that statement? What about another restaurant? Raise your hand if you think that there is a restaurant out there that the food is so good it is literally life-changing for you. Anybody? What about home-cooked? Home-cooked meals. Who's home-cooked? All right. Well, I want us to hold on to this idea that Chipotle saves lives. We're going to come visit that in just a few short moments. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Caden, and I get the honor and privilege to serve here as the youth resident. It's been such an amazing opportunity for me to explore what a call to ministry has looked like on my life. And I felt a tugging and a pull uh, really over the last couple of years and, and started to begin to explore and experience this, you know, what this next step might look like for me. And Russell approached me just a few short months ago and provided an opportunity to do that. And so it's been so cool to be able to work so closely under Russell and, and daily with my dad and just the incredible team that we have here at Reach. So, so blessed by the opportunity to do that. Uh, on another note, speaking of reach in our family, yesterday was my dad, his fifth year anniversary from the day that he joined staff here at Reach Church. So again, we're just so blessed to be a part of what, what, what God's doing here at Reach Church. We're going to jump into Acts chapter 3 today. If you're there, say, I'm there. Perfect. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us! The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. For us in the youth, we spend uh, time each year going into the next school year prayerfully considering where we feel God is leading us and, and where we want to go, the direction we want to take the students for the new year. As Russell began to pray and spend time in the Word and really, really asking God where he believes we're called as youth ministry to go, this idea and theme for the year that he settled on is each one reach one. And it's this concept that if we look at the amount of students we have in our youth ministry right now, what would it look like if each one of these students grasped this concept and decided to just invite one friend? Just bring one. So we had them identify, who's this person in your life? Who's God maybe tugging on your heart to bring this one person? And as kids began to grasp this concept, we wanted to see what would happen. And it's not about us at Reach Youth being able to say that we have the largest youth ministry or that we have that many more kids than the next, but it's really this idea because we want to see how many of these students are going to grasp this and bring that one person that may encounter Jesus for the first time? So we've been spending a lot of time really going back into this, this overarching theme that we've settled on for the year, is each one reach one. As we look here in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going into the temple. They're going into an intentional time of worship. They're going to pray. They're going to get alone with God in community with others, but really just to spend time in prayer with the Lord. They're encountered by a layman. This man, physically unable to walk, has to literally be picked up and carried every single day to the temple gates. Hasn't ever been in the temple, but has to be carried to the temple gates so he can beg for money to earn his livelihood. This is how this man is earning his living. He's able to live because of the blessings of others. So we see Peter and John encountered by this man. And this man asks, he says, Oh, excuse me. Peter and John look at him intently after this man is asking for, for, for money. 
And Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. Now, I wonder for us in our own life, how many times that's the case, where we're confronted with a situation, or, or maybe we in our own lives have identified that person, that, that each one reach one idea. And how many times do we get to a point where we don't feel like we have anything to offer? We don't know that we have the right words to say. We don't have the, 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 pro, the solutions to their problems. We don't, have, we, we don't have the fix to everything that's going wrong. I want to tell you guys, bring you back to the original point in this idea that Chipotle saves lives. And it's kind of a joke because if you know me or my family at all, you know that we love Chipotle. We don't just go to Chipotle. We're not your average Chipotle consumer. No, no, no. We go to Chipotle, right? So I remember recently— uh, in the last few years, there was a day of like 11 or 12 days straight where I had Chipotle at least once a day, sometimes twice, and then I might have even gotten a third bowl for dinner that night or breakfast the next morning. So yeah, we go to Chipotle. When we moved here five years ago, we began to unpack our home and, you know, get things in the right rooms, go shopping for the essentials that we needed to outfit, uh, you know, our new house, began to drive around the community and learn. And one of the things, one of our essentials as a family, as any smart, rational, sane family would do, right, we needed to find our closest Chipotle. So we began to do some research and we found what that was and we just began going. We love it so much that that was one of our essentials. We began to, we continued to go, and it got to a point where I remember pretty shortly after we had started going, uh, we would walk in to go, hang out with staff, you know, just go get lunch. These people were literally like, bro, you're here too much. Like, go home, go do something, right? They had seen us all the time, but it was at that point that we began to start building community and friendship and relationship with these people. So they recognized, hey, you know, if these guys, these bums are going to be here all the time, we might as well invest in them, right? Let's get, let's get to know each other. So that kind of grew into what, what, it, what it became. But shortly after, you know, we would start to come with, with my family and then the staff would begin to just do little things to, to put a smile on my sister's face, give them extra oranges or apple juices or greet us with a hug or a high five or whatever that may have been. And I remember, you know, we got to, to be pretty close friends with the manager at the time, Julius, and uh, oftentimes he would come take a break from work and what he was doing and, and just come enjoy food with our family. It was this community aspect where we had gotten to be close friends with, with these people and he began to then invest in us. And so a lot of times I remember, you know, conversations where it felt like every time we ate with him, we always ended up in a debate about who was better, Michael Jordan or LeBum James, greatest basketball of all time. And I did say LeBum James because it is Michael Jordan. Uh, so the conversation stops there, right? Um, and it was just so cool because we did get to invest in these people and, and grow into relationship and community and, and friendship with them. Now, one of the young men we got the opportunity to meet and the privilege to, to get to know, uh, his name is Carlos. And so Carlos, at the time when we first met him, was a student going to Westside High School. And I remember pretty vividly, actually, the first day that we met him. My dad was there with my family and just began to ask him questions, no different than we would any other staff member, getting to know him. You know, things like, where are you from? Where do you go to school? How old are you? You know, what do you want to do when you grow up? Those types of questions. And it was cool just to be able to get to know the, these staff members, these people, and, and that relationship grew over the course of many years, three, four, five years now, to where it was. So I remember I was driving home, probably from soccer, somewhere I can imagine, and I get a phone call from my dad, no different, just checking in, seeing what's up. But this conversation, this phone call was a little different, because the conversation started, he said, you'll never believe the conversation I just had. So me, I was eager to hear, you know, what, had, what he had just experienced, and began to tell me about them just going to Chipotle. 
and having another conversation with, with Carlos. And the conversation had, had kind of steered away from, you know, the general, hey man, how are you doing? But they had began to talk about their faith. And my dad began to share a little bit about, you know, what he does. And my dad began to also ask questions. Questions like, hey, you know, do you go to church? What do you, what do you believe in? Do you have any religious beliefs? And so that right there began to bridge the gap. I want us to take into the consideration again that we started just by going to Chipotle. Now we're at a point where we've grown friendships. We have the relationships with these people that we're able to open up, get out of our comfort zone, and have these conversations because we built the friendships and relationships. So now we're talking about our faith. My dad goes to pay, get our food, go eat lunch with my family. But he does something so simple. And he extended an invite to Carlos to come to church with us that Sunday. Now, for many of you who may have invited people to church, a lot of times we see that it doesn't just take one invitation, but it may take persistence and two, three, four, five invitations, maybe even more, months, years of relationship, friendships, for them to even act on it or consider it. But we were surprised just a few short days later that Carlos showed up on church, at church. And he sat with our family in the back right of this section here, and walking away from the service, Carlos was wrecked. He, he got to this point where he couldn't explain what he had just experienced. The only thing that he could literally come up with was, thank you, and I never knew church could be like that. So we see this as an example of how something so simple has now gotten to the point where it is, where we have a friend who we've invited to church who is experiencing Christ for the first time, and we're watching his life be changed us in the youth ministry, this is around mid to late July, we're preparing for Camp Refuge. And for those of you who may have had the opportunity to experience what a youth camp is like, you can understand that it can be life-changing. It can be life-transforming for these students to have a week away from all the distractions of the world, uh, your parents. You know, you get to go and you get to be with your friends. Uh, <laughs> and it's just an incredible time to be able to be in community with your friends. And so there's life change and transformation that happens at camp. Well, Carlos didn't know what to do with this, this feeling that he had, this unexplainable feeling that he had, but he wanted to act on it. So we went out to the Connection Center. He began to talk to some of our staff, and, and Carlos got registered for camp that same day. Fast forward just a couple weeks. I left a day prior to the start of camp with Russell, some of our worship team, the tech team. Started to get the little things ironed out, make sure that it was smooth for the camper's arrival. And really just get the last minute preparations done. And as Carlos himself, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a more shy kid. And so you can imagine that this was difficult for him. This is all new to him. He's just now coming back to the church. He's just now experiencing, you know, what it is, you know, God's starting to move into his life. So this was, this was intimidating for him. But Carlos took the first step in faith and came to camp. For those of you who, like I said, may have experienced camp, a lot of times it takes these students a couple days, a couple worship sessions, you know, a couple games, chapels where you get to be with your friends, but, but you come out of your shell a little bit, right? You get to, you get to feel the vibe of the camp. You, you start to learn, you know, your counselor's names, your, your teammates' names, friends, whatever, and you really begin to open up. And so we saw that happening with a lot of these kids. And for us at Camp Refuge, we wanted to do something a little bit different. A lot of times at camp, you have all the buildup throughout the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday's your big day. You have your big salvation call, whatever it may be. But we want to do it a little bit different because a lot of times we think that if 
you build up to that Friday, and then you have that big life-changing experience, then what's next, right? So we moved that day for us at Camp Refuge to a Wednesday so that we could have that life change, that transformation, have, and, and watch these students, watch it happen in their lives, but also give them an opportunity to explore what's next. So Wednesday night, everybody's coming into chapel service, you know, a little bit on edge. We, we kind of know something is different, something's different about the night, but not knowing what to expect. And as the night unfolded, it was incredible just to see these students wrecked, convicted, and, and watched how God moved in the lives of these students. One of those students being Carlos. And I remember after worship, coming to sit in the row with, with him and a couple of kids from our team, and just tears began to fall. And so again, we're, we're watching this, this young man. His life is continuing to be transformed and changed by the impact of others. And it started because we wanted to get food. Now, at camp, one of the, I remember one of the days we were waiting for the next chapel service. I think it was actually the next game. And uh, I was sitting at a table hanging out with some of the leaders, and Carlos came and sat next to me. And it was an incredible conversation, but this was after our Wednesday night chapel service. And he had a lot of questions. He began to ask things that I, had, I didn't have the answers to. So I pulled Steve Doolin, our outreach pastor, into the conversation, and we just began to talk. Began to hear a little bit about Carlos's heart and some of his struggles. And in that moment, though, for me, I didn't have the answers. Steve didn't necessarily have all the answers or the right words. We couldn't step into a situation and the things that he was dealing with and just fix them. There was no magic switch that changed everything that was going on. So in this moment, we had nothing left to offer but this. And we were able to point Carlos back to the only thing that mattered in that moment. Amen. Now, Carlos' experiences at camp was life-changing, but he hadn't made the decision yet to fully give his life to Christ. We come back from camp. We, we see the students. They have a new song written on their heart. They're ready to pursue Jesus in a new way, mutually encouraged by one another. And we continue to see Carlos here every Sunday. And then he begins to show up on Wednesdays, join us in the youth ministry and the students that he had just had his life change and transformation. transformation those, that encounter, now he begins to enjoy with his peers. A few weeks ago at youth group, my dad shared an incredible message about what it looks like in our own faith to take that step, that next step, maybe that first step, but that next step. Getting out of your comfort zone and just following the call that God is putting on your heart. What does that look like? And that was the night where Carlos finally said, I've had enough. This is it. I can't do this anymore. Here's who I was. This is who I am now. This is what God's doing in and through me. This is who I want to be. And so that Wednesday night, Carlos gave his life to Christ. And I want us to remember that this started because we just started going to Chipotle. Friendships, relationships were built, and an invitation was extended. Peter and John didn't have what this man was looking for in the moment. They didn't have the gold or silver that he needed. But he didn't need that. He needed the only thing that mattered eternally. And we see that evident in Carlos's life is, hey man, I, I really don't know how to help you here, but I can give you the only thing that does matter. So it's incredible because, like I said, we watch just how things unfold. And in the most unforeseen circumstances, we see this young man who didn't know what he needed in the moment, and we didn't have what he was longing for, but we could point him back to the only thing that mattered. So as we begin to challenge our students on this, on this topic of each one reach one, I want us to think about, is there a person in our life? Is there somebody that you feel God may be pulling in your heart? Who is this person, if there is, that, that you need to just take that first step in faith? What does that look like? And it may not be now or next week, but these relationships that continue to grow 
and how they manifest into this opportunity to invite and see life change. Verse 2, as they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, Look at us! The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, get up and walk. Who's your Carlos at Chipotle? Who do you need to begin praying for and prayerfully considering what the next step in action, in faith looks like? Because you could be the difference between a young man, a young woman, whoever it may be, going from, here's who I was, this is what God's done through me, and this is who I will be. You could be the difference between somebody's life. We just take a moment to celebrate what just happened. I, I, don't, I don't know that you guys fully grasp the fact that an 18-year-old high school student just got up here in front of all of you and preached the lights out of the building. Now, I've had the opportunity of knowing Caden for the past year and a half, and, and last year I gave him his first opportunity to preach, and it was okay. It wasn't this. In just a year, it's been incredible to see. And what he said is true. About three, four months ago, uh, we began to just have these deeper conversations. He's like, man, I feel like I'm called to ministry. I don't know what to do. And I was like, man, I don't think I have all the answers, but I'd love to take some time and invest in you. Would you come be a part of what we're doing here? And over these last few months, we've been able to plan together, to grow together, do all these amazing things. It's all because a young man said, you know what? I know what I want to do with my life, and that's to serve Jesus with every aspect of it. So how incredible is it for me to stand up here now and try to follow that? I'll do my best. Hold on. Verse 7. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. Do you know how much easier it would have been if they would have just given him some money? It would have been so much easier to do what all the other religious elite did in that day. Just walk by, give them a few, give them some alms, give them some coins, give them some dollars, and just keep it moving. Hey, man, here you go. And what these religious people would do is they'd kind of walk around, puff their chest all high and mighty. Hey, look, yeah, go ahead. Here, here, here's, here's some scraps for you. And I'm going to go in the temple, and I'm going to go worship because I'm capable and I'm able. It would have been easier for Peter and John to do that. And I would maybe argue that maybe they did have some money. But they understood in this moment that the thing that he actually needed was not their physical resources. The thing that they actually needed was Jesus. How often are we quick to serve? We're quick to do things for people. But if it comes to talking to people about Jesus, we're like, oh, hey, 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 hey. Not me. Now, if we have the means and the ability to meet people's needs, do it. People don't want to, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you have the ability to care for people, do it. But do not leave it there. It would have been so easy. But for Peter and John, they had to sacrifice their comfort for the sake of someone else's soul. Watch this, verse 8. He jumped up, stood on his feet, 
and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Not only did they say, hey, hey, silver and gold I don't have, but I give you, I do have. They reached down into his mess. They reached down into his situation, into his brokenness, into his sickness, and pulled him up. They got a little messy. Why? Because they weren't worried about their comfort. They were willing to sacrifice some comfortability. They were willing to sacrifice maybe some rejection, maybe some weird looks, maybe the other people looking like, what are you doing with this guy? Just throw him some coins and keep moving. Why are you even talking to him? But they realized that there was something more happening here. And because of their sacrifice, a man who has never been able to walk does what? He gets up, he stands on his feet, and he walks. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple. Do we understand that there was a little bit of sacrifice that had to happen on this man's part too? His reputation was at stake. All he's ever been known as is a beggar by the temple gate. That's all he's ever been known as. Now he has the opportunity for life change. And what happens? He gets up. He's, he's joyful. He's consumed in this moment. And now he walks into the temple. Maybe, presumably, for the very first time. He has never had the ability to go into the temple. And what does he do? After an encounter with Jesus, go straight into the temple, leaping, jumping, dancing, and praising God. How often do we miss it? How often do we miss the fact that we have the opportunity week in to week out to come to the house of God? But maybe because of our pride, maybe because of our tradition, maybe because of our comfort, we miss it week after week. We wouldn't come in here leaping, dancing, singing praises to God. Oh, that's... That's a little uncomfortable. How often do we miss it with our friends, with our coworkers, with our Carlos at Chipotle? Do you think it was comfortable for the Anderson family to build a relationship with a complete stranger? Of course not. Of course not. But was it worth it? Absolutely. Because now a young man's life has been transformed. He has encountered Jesus and his life has now been changed forever. This lame beggar, his means of receiving money is now on the line. He no longer has the right to beg. Do you understand? Like people who are lame, people who are blind, they, had, where they were given a right to beg. And it was up to the religious people, the church people, to get, it was their responsibility to give them money. Now he can no longer do that. He was willing to lay down his means of income for the sake of praising God because now he has the ability to stand and to worship, and to praise. He's willing to sacrifice the things that are dearest to him, the only things that he's ever known because of what God did in his life. How many of us can look at our own lives and ask this question, where do I need to sacrifice? In what areas of my life is God asking me to sacrifice? And I would say probably the number one area in most of our lives, especially here in America, is comfort. We have been taught to go down the path of least resistance, to buy things and to do things to make our lives easier, to make our lives more comfortable. Just a few days ago, I had been experiencing some Wi-Fi issues at my house. And I was a little frustrated, but I wasn't going to complain about it. And then Andrew comes in and says, this is stupid. 
I can't do this anymore. I've been trying to work on this project for three days. What's been going on with the Wi-Fi and Blair? Anybody else? Just us? Oh, my gosh. If, if, if someone's on their phone, someone's on the TV, and someone's on a console in our house, it just you can't do anything. It's crazy. Comfort. Comfort. We consume ourselves with things that have no internal, eternal impact. We have language around here. We call them the three T's. Does anybody know? I'll give you the first one. Time, treasures, talents. I said this on Wednesday night, but it bears repeating to you guys this morning. God has given us gifts. He's given us ability. God has given us time. He's given us treasures. And he's given us talents for two things. To worship him and to serve others. Period. But what do most of us do with our time, treasures, and talents? Serve ourselves. Make our lives easier. Now, am I saying that there's anything wrong with having nice things? Of course not. Of course not. But if your number one priority with the abilities and the gifts and the talents and the money and the resources and the time that God has given you is to serve yourself, you've already missed it. Worship God, serve others. Can I tell you this morning that your worship should cost you something? It should cost you a little comfort. It should cost you a little time. It should cost you a little money. It should cost you a little pride. I told this to the first service and, and it just... I just want to tell you guys, I just want to help you out. This is for free, okay? This is not a part of my notes. So if you ever watch me during worship, okay, you'll, a lot of times you'll see this. Let me tell you why. I, I love to raise two hands, but my arms get really tired, okay? So I'll do this because then when my right hand gets tired, oh, yeah, I'm in it still. Yeah, baby, come on now. And every once in a while, there's a good moment. But you'll see those good moments last about 10 seconds. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to come right here. Hey, come on, I'm in it now. But you know what? I see that my God is worth it enough that I'm willing to sacrifice a little discomfort if it means that I'm gonna praise him. I'm willing to sacrifice what other people may think about me because God is worth it. I understand what he's done in my own life. I understand who I was before him and who I am now because of him and who he's promised that I will be. I understand the things that he's done in my life and therefore I am willing to sacrifice something for him. If we weren't called to sacrifice, why would Jesus himself say, take up your cross daily and follow me? Deny yourself. Why would he call us to do that if it was just supposed to be cushy and easy all the time? He would never say that. He's called us to sacrifice. Why? Why? I, I, with our students, I always want to ask and answer the question, why? I don't ever want to be the youth pastor that says, don't do this, don't do this, don't, don't go there, don't say this, and just leave it at that. Growing up, my youth pastor was really good about telling me, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex. Go to church. Read your Bible. Five things. That's all I learned in high school. Don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex, go to church, read your Bible. Like any rational kid would do, I said, why? Like, I get it on the surface that these are bad things to do, but I needed something more than that. Why am I sacrificing what I perceive to be fun for the sake of this? Why? And unfortunately, a lot of times I was met with, because I said so, right, mom and dad? Because I said so. Stop asking. But as a youth pastor, I want to ask and answer the question, why? Why do we do that? Well, because the promises of God are greater than the promises of this world. The things that God has for us is greater than anything that this world can give us. The most satisfaction that we can receive in this world is serving him, not just doing what our flesh desires. 
And so when I'm asking, when we're telling you, we're imploring you to sacrifice in the place of worship, sacrifice your time, your treasures, and your talents. Why? Because he sacrificed it all. Because he gave it all. And because if he gave it all, then it is... That it should be that much easier for me to stand up and sacrifice a little bit of comfort. You know, for me, where I can sacrifice the most? Sleep. You know my favorite thing to do? I did it this morning. I don't even care. Actually, I do care. That's why I'm talking about it. I'm putting myself on blast. I pressed snooze probably 17 times this morning. <laughs> and for some reason, the iPhone is like nine minutes and four seconds is the weirdest thing. So every nine minutes and four seconds for 17 times, you do the math. Literally, it was probably, it was at least 10. For an hour and a half. Every nine minutes, ding, ding. And this made it easy. Now all you got to do is like press one of the buttons on the side. Used to, you have to like look at it, blinded by the light, like fine snooze. I just press the button. I just literally, ah, oh, and then I'm gone again. You guys are laughing because you know what I'm talking about, right? The place that I can sacrifice the most is sleep. Maybe start going to bed a little bit earlier so I can get up early and spend some time with the Lord. So I can set a aside time for my day. Why? Because he's worth it. Not because it's a part of my checklist, not because it's something I'm supposed to do, because he's worth it. Because he sacrificed. Today, as we look at sacrifices as part of our worship, we get to partake in communion as a community. We get to have this moment where we remember what Christ did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. The one thing that I want to make sure that we don't do today is we don't treat this just as some religious ritual or tradition that we do. Because all too often, many of us treat Sundays just the same. We come in and we worship. We come in and we read the Bible. We come in and we give money. We come in and we give time. Why? Well, that's just what we do. We come in every once in a while and we take communion. Why? Well, it's tradition. That's what we do. Nope. That's not what it was intended to be. Jesus said himself, the purpose behind communion was to remember the sacrifice that he would make on the cross for all of us, once and for all, for all. So I'm gonna invite the ushers to come now and we're gonna pass out the elements. And when you receive these elements, I just want you to hold on to them. And in a moment, we're gonna take communion together. But because I am often so guilty of just looking past this time, I wanted to read an article to you guys today that a pastor friend of mine sent to me a couple years ago. And this is a physician's biblical and historical account of the crucifixion. Every time I read this, it's a little hard to read. Because we can read the scriptures and we can kind of get an image. But if we don't really understand what crucifixion was in the times of Jesus, we can just look past it. And I don't want us to look past this moment where we remember what he did for us lightly. I want us to take us seriously today. And if you can, if you have any ounce of imagination, maybe you need to close your eyes to get there. But I want you to try to picture, as I'm reading these words, as I'm reading this description, I want you to try to get there in your mind. Picture what is happening. Picture our Savior being beaten, battered, and bruised. Why? For us. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was next brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. It is here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they each passed by, spat upon him, and struck him 
in the face. Early in the morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, Jesus is taken to Pontius Pilate. You are, of course, familiar with Pilate's action in attempting to pass responsibility to Herod Antipas. Jesus apparently suffered no physical mistreatment at the hands of Herod and was turned, returned to Pilate. It was then in response to the cries of the mob that Pilate ordered Barabbas, Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. There is much disagreement among authorities about the unusual scourging as a prelude to crucifixion. Most Roman writers from this period do not associate the two. Many scholars believe that Pilate originally ordered Jesus scourged as his full punishment and that the death sentence by crucifixion came only in response to the taunt by the mob. Preparations for the scourging were carried out when the prisoner, Jesus, was stripped of his clothing, his hands tied to a post above his head. It is doubtful the Romans would have made any attempt to follow the Jewish law in this matter, but the Jews had an ancient law prohibiting more than 40 lashes. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the whip in his hand. This short whip is consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small beads of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again and again across Jesus' shoulder, back and legs. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this Jew complaint, claiming to be king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. Flexible branches covered with long forms are plated into the shape of a crown and then pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious amounts of bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand, strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. Already having adhered to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its, cause, its removal causes excruciating pain, just, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, and almost as though he were again being whipped. And the wounds once more begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy cross is tied across his shoulders and the procession, procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion begins its slow journey along the Via Dolorosa. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. He stumbles and fall. The rough, the rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. 
The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock until the 650-yard journey from the fortress of Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the cross on the ground and Jesus quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow for some flexion and movement. The cross is then lifted into place and at the top Jesus of Nazareth king of the Jews is nailed in place the left foot is now pressed backward against the right foot with both feet extended toes down a nail is driven through the arch of each leaving the knees moderately flexed the victim our Christ our savior is now crucified As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, as the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles knotting them in deep relentless throbbing pain with these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward hanging by his arms the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It is undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences recorded. First, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his garment. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, to the thief, today you will be with me. In paradise. The third, looking down at the terrified and grief stricken John, the beloved apostle, he said, Behold your mother. And then looking to his mother, Mary, behold your son. The fourth cry is from the beginning of the 22nd Psalm My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. One remembers again the 22nd Psalm and the 14th verse, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissue. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue send their flood of stimuli to the brain. Jesus gasps his fifth cry, 
I thirst. One may remember another verse from the 22nd Psalm. My strength is dried up and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you have brought me into the dust of death. A a sponge soaked in cheap sour wine, which is a staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. He doesn't take any of the liquid. The body of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, is now in extremes. And he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brings out his six words, possibly a little more than a tortured whisper. It is finished. His mission of atonement has completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his leg, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and final cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. begin to understand what my Savior did for me, all of a sudden this, this is a little less uncomfortable. All of a sudden getting up when my alarm goes off the first time is a little less inconvenient. All of a sudden Char- Carlos Echipole is an opportunity because if I believe this to be true, which I do. And at the end of this life, there's only one decision that'll ever matter. Not what job I had, not what education I got, not what house I lived in, but what I did with the decision to choose or reject Christ. And the second to that is only what I've chosen to do with that for other people going all the way back to what Caden said, we often feel like we don't have the resources, we don't have the means to meet these people's needs, but the reality is we have the one thing that they actually need, and we need to quit robbing the people in our lives with the opportunity to encounter the living Christ. Because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that actually matters. So as we partake in communion this morning, I don't want it to just be tradition or ritual. With it fresh in our minds, the, the suffering and the pain and the torture that our Christ, our Savior, our Jesus went through. He said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. And this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth regarding the Lord's Supper or communion. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. This is why, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread 
and drinking the cup. We're going to pause for just a moment. I want to give an opportunity for us to examine our hearts. Communion isn't something that we take lightly. In fact, it goes on to say that you can actually bring judgment, sickness, even death upon yourself. It is something you do if you take this lightly. But here's what I do know to be true. We serve a God who forgives. So if there's anything in our life, sin is what separates us from God. So if there's anything, any sin in our life, in a moment, we can say, God, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. And he is faithful and just to forgive. Amen? So we're going to take a moment of reflection. I'm going to pause for just a few moments to allow you in your own words, whatever that may look like, fresh in our minds, the sacrifice that he made. I am often too guilty of just moving past this. We're going to partake in this together this morning, but let's pause for just a moment and reflect. Because of your cross, our debt is paid. Because of the precious blood of the spotless lamb, our sins are washed away. Father, if there's anything, any unforgiveness, any sin in our life that we need to get rid of right now, we abandon that. We repent and we turn towards you. God, we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive. That you are the God of second chances. Even when we feel like we've blown it, in a moment we can turn back to you and you're there waiting with open arms. Maybe for someone in here today, this is their first time. Your word says, believe in our hearts, confess with our mouth that you are Lord and we shall be saved. It's not about how good we are. It's not about doing the right things or saying the right things. It's about faith in you. As we take this communion together, Lord, I pray that this would not just be tradition. This would not just be ritual. God, this would be an offering of worship to you as we remember the sacrifice that you made for us in our place. Let's take the bread together this morning. you're so worthy Father you're so good we thank you Lord that we get to come and sacrifice because you first paid the ultimate price for us in these next few moments Lord I pray that as we lift a song of worship to you for some of us maybe for the first time we begin to open our mouth and raise our hands not because some preacher told us to, not because some worship pastor told us to, but simply because you're worth it, God. You're worth it. You're worth our words. You're worth our breath. You're worth our actions, God. We wanna sacrifice our time, treasures, and talents for you. Why? Because you're worth it.